Welcome to our sixth Carolina Roll Call podcast. My name is Jacory, and my partner name is I'm Coleman. And today we are so excited to sit down with uh, Congressman Tom Rice, who represents the Seventh uh, Congressional District. Um, this race is very important for me and Jacory. Uh, we both live in the district, um, and we both were born there and have grown up there our entire lives. Um, so we're really excited to watch this race develop between Melissa Watson and Tom Rice. Uh, so welcome, Congressman Rice. Uh, we want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the viewers who may not know you or may not know much about you. Well, I grew up here in the district and lived here pretty much all my life, except for a couple of years after law school to get some experience. And uh, tax lawyer and CPA, been involved in the community, been involved in the district my entire professional career. Got married here, raised my family here, built my business here. Very deep connections here. And uh, I say tax lawyer, CPA, I had retired when I was fairly young. And I was worried because my kids were coming out of college. And they couldn't find a job. I was worried about you guys and people your age. And, uh, you know, particularly in this district where, you know, there's not enough uh, for opportunity for folks. And a lot of times people like y'all who grow up in the district, uh, like Melissa who grows up in the district, they leave and go somewhere else because there's not enough opportunity for them. And what I, want, I felt like I had, as a CPA and a tax lawyer, talent that could be employed to try to make that better for the country and for our district in particular. Well, thank you for that. Um, and now we want to move into uh, kind of some policy questions. Uh, you're running to serve a fifth term. Uh, what issues for this new Congress are you going to focus on? What issues are at the center of your race? Well, you know, guys, before we do that, uh, see, I want the viewers out there to know that these guys stood me up because we were supposed to meet here at the Brothers Grill and, uh, and have a relaxed meeting and have a beer and talk about this. So here's my beer. See, I got it. Y'all have a beer? All right, so we're, we're still doing it, but we're doing it long distance now. Where are you guys? Spartanburg. Where? Spartanburg. Okay. Well, that is a long way from here. Uh, anyway, uh, now coming back to issues, you know, when I ran in 2012, as I just said, uh, my three main issues were jobs, jobs, and jobs. I think that, uh, I think that a job equals opportunity equals a shot at the American dream. And, uh, and we got a lot done. I went Donald Trump got into office with tax reform, regulatory reform, trade reform, and then infrastructure, the Dillon Inland Fort. It was transformational for this district. Uh, when I took office in 2012, 2013, unemployment rate in Marion County, South Carolina was around 15%. At the end of Barack Obama's term, uh, uh, after he'd had eight years to fix it, it was still at about 10%. 9.8 or some such. After three years of Barack Obama, the unemployment rate in Marion County, South Carolina was 4%. So, you know, uh, Marion, Dillon, Marlboro, three historically very poor uh, counties, majority African-American counties, uh, had never had opportunity like uh, they had seen uh, up until only six months ago. <laughs> and then came COVID. And so, uh, you know, unlike a lot of others, I think the president has done a very good job of managing this uh, illness. Uh, I think if you look, compare us to other free open societies where, you know, we're not locking people down and threatening them with jail if they leave their house, uh, our, our, uh, and plus our, our ability to treat it has come so far that we're already 
seeing our economy start to recover. Uh, six months ago, our unemployment rate was 15%. Uh, today, it's at 7.8%. So it's already been cut in half, a, a drop of 7% in, in, in six months. Uh, the Obama and Biden administration didn't accomplish that in eight years. Uh, at the end of Obama and Biden's administration, uh, uh, two-thirds of people, according to Standard and Poor's, did not believe that their children would have the same opportunity they have. And so I'm, I'm really proud of how far we've come, and all I want to do is get back to where we were six months ago. I want Absolutely. to get past, past this disease, and I want to, that, that is my focus in this next Congress. That has been my focus since I, I got to Congress, is I want people coming out of school that live in this district to be able to get a good job in this district and stay here and be happy with their family. Absolutely, and I think that's a good, like, it goes into our one of our points, is the economy. Republicans across the country praised President Trump for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and it was effective, and it's going to bring a lot to the economy. What is your take on that, um, Congressman Rice? Do you believe that it has brought a lot to the economy in our in the 7th District, our district? Uh, as I said, six months ago, uh, every county in my eight-county district was below 5% unemployment. I have three of the poorest counties in the state, Marion, Dillon, Marlboro, Every one of them were below 5% and some were below 4% unemployment. That had never, ever happened in my lifetime, if ever. I don't think it has ever happened. I think it's uh, patent, unquestionable, not just tax reform, but, but uh, also regulatory reform, easing some of the financial regulations that were put in place after the uh, Great Recession. Uh, uh, trade reform, reset with Mexico and China. You remember when Y'all weren't even born yet, but when Ross Perot was running for president, he said, if we enact NAFTA, there'll be a giant sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico and Canada. And he was right. And so tightening those rules, making it uh, less profitable to move business operations to other places, tightening the rules with China. And so all those things juice the national economy. And then you put in a piece of infrastructure like the Dillon Inland Port, right in the middle of those three very poor counties, created 2,000 jobs in less than two years. Uh, if you think about it, those three poor counties have about 90,000 people living, all three of them combined. Say, say 50 or 60,000 are in the workforce. That's a 3% drop in the unemployment rate by itself. So this is not by accident. This is not, you know, just happenstance. It's not luck. It is a coordinated strategy that has worked to provide opportunity for people who never had it before. And I'm real proud of it. So one of the reasons we're in this economic situation that we are in right now is because of COVID-19. I know you've I know you had COVID-19, you and your wife. Um, we were certainly thinking about you during that time. And the president as well got it. I mean, and so how, how first, my first question is, did this COVID situation have to be this bad? Did you know, did 210,000 Americans have to die? Um, could it have been better? No, no, we could have done a whole lot better. We could have put police on every corner and we could have said, if you step out of the house, you will go to jail. And, and we could have, that's what the Chinese did. And, and we could have said, you know, we'll deliver you a bag of rice every day and you eat that. And, you know, we could stamp this disease out. But the, the truth is that we live in a free and open society. And Americans are not going to give that up. And if you look, if you compare us to comparable societies uh, like Europe, 
and like South, uh, some places in South America and so forth. Uh, no, I think we compare very, very favorably. There has to be a, there has, you know, there's certainly a healthcare cost to having an open society in a case like this, but there's also a healthcare cost in shutting everything down and making people lose their jobs and, and their children can't go to school. And the, and the anxiety that that creates and the hunger that that creates and the lost opportunities that creates. There's, there's cost to both. And so what you have to try to do is find a, a medium. And I think that, you know, the president is certainly anxious to give people opportunity. Like me, that, that, that's where we're aligned. I want everybody to have a shot at the American dream. And, uh, and I think he's very anxious for that. And I think he's pushed to open, you know, he's gotten criticism, you know, he can't open too early. Uh, but I, I think he's handled it uh, very well. I mean, you could go back and hindsight's 2020. Uh, he could have locked down travel earlier, but when he did lock travel down, he got criticism from both sides of the aisle. I mean, Joe Biden was criticizing him, criticizing him for shutting it down when he did. So, you know, Hindsight's 2020, I think he's done an admirable job, and I think we're already coming out of it. The fact that our unemployment rates already dropped from 15 to 7.8 is pretty remarkable, and that we're still in this thing. It's not over, but, uh, but uh, I think we'll come out of it. We'll come out of it well. We'll get through it, just like America always does. And, and, uh, and my question to the voters would be, you've seen what Barack Obama and Joe Biden did in the recovery that they had. And they, what they did was they enacted Dodd-Frank and Obamacare, two massive government programs with massive regulation, took away the ability to, to uh, capitalize businesses at a time when they desperately needed capital. And the result of that, uh, and they also raised taxes, uh, and the result of that was a long period of stat slow, stagnant growth. And that's why so many Americans at the end of his presidency were saying, I don't think my kids will ever have the opportunity to uh, um, Donald Trump took a lot of that away. And the result of that was a, a big upswing in the economy. And, uh, and I want the question to the voters, if you've seen the stagnation that Obama and Biden created, you lived through it, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen what Donald Trump did by accelerating the economy. Who do you trust? to bring us out of this economic uh, problem that we're in with, uh, with COVID. Who do you trust to do that? I think the voters will have to trust Donald Trump. And Congressman Rice, I just want to make a comment before Coleman follows up with a question. I, I like the comment that you made, that there's so many other ways we could have did COVID, but we do live in America. And I think for people listening to this, and I think for people watching this and our, and our viewers, it's important that we know that, that we do live in a free country where we want people to wear masks, we want people to social distance, but we want people to have the opportunity to live in a society where they make choices for themselves. So I'm, I'm happy that you made that comment. I love what we're doing here with the schools. Are y'all gonna ask me about that? Or you want me to wait or you wanna go ahead and talk about that? I'll ask you about it now. You know, the governor, and we'll be with him, not next week, but the week after that. And, you know, that's one of the questions we're gonna to talk to him about. You know, do you think that the schools in South Carolina should have been open? I absolutely do. Now, you know, I have the benefit of 2020 hindsight in that the CDC issued their uh, fatality uh, and survivability uh, numbers on 
COVID. We're, you know, six months, a little bit more than that in right now. And so, you know, at first we didn't know what was going to happen, but data has come out and, and gives us a much more clear picture. And for people who are under 21 years old, the, uh, the survivability rate is 99.997%, which means that if you get COVID, uh, three people in 100,000 will, will die from that. Now, and I promise you those three people are people who have heart disease, uh, who have uh, obesity, who have diabetes, who have lung disease. And those folks, we need to be real careful about segregating those and keeping them, keeping good care of them. But for the rest of the world, the rest of the world, the young, healthy folks like you guys, right? Uh, you can go on with your life and you, there's a huge cost that you face if we shut everything down and you finish your school and you can't go find a job, right? So there's really very little reason that you guys should suffer that economic cost. Uh, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't be careful. I'm not saying that you shouldn't socially distance and wash your hands and wear a face mask and, I mean, and not go out to, uh, you know, in large gatherings and all those types of things. But your risk from getting this disease is very, very low. Uh, and, and even up to, uh, I, I, I don't remember the exact statistics off the top of my head, I could look them up, but even up to age 60, I think it's something like 99.5% of the people who get this disease survive it. So uh, every, these things all have to be weighed and you have to all make your individual decisions. I love what the governor did in that he said, we're gonna open schools, but <laughs> you have a choice. We're also gonna have online schools. So, you know, I can sit here and tell a parent all day long, you know, the chances of your child dying from this disease are three in 100,000, but your child's pretty precious. I mean, my children are pretty precious. And I don't want any government official, no congressman, no governor, no, nobody else telling me I have to send my kids to school. I wanna give them the option those schools are open, and, but if you want your child to stay home and be on the internet, then that's fine. You know, they can do virtual schools. I think I think that choice is very important, and I, both my parents are in uh, educators in Sheraw, um, so I definitely know that struggle. Um, I guess we're going to move into mom, the healthcare. I was a school teacher for thirty years as well. She taught. That's all. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so we're going to move into a healthcare type topic. I know a lot of people have learned a lot about our healthcare. I mean, we obviously praise our healthcare workers during this time. We've learned so much about them during this pandemic. Uh, but one thing we want to focus on is that uh, Republicans in the House and in the Senate have always focused on repealing and replacing Obamacare, uh, but it is yet to happen yet. Um, so I guess my biggest question, if, if you had the opportunity to repeal Obamacare in a new Congress, what's the replacement? I like what we did uh, before that, you know, the, the, the reason it failed was because we only had 51 Republican senators and, and we could only lose two and, and uh, John McCain was the second one that we lost. Uh, if we had the opportunity to bring it up through the House again and put it back in front of the Senate, I think it would have passed. But basically what it did was uh, it allowed insurance companies to sell to the government. Uh, the risk of some of ten, up to 10% of their most sick patients. And that would have caused premiums. To, if, if the insurance companies can offload their most expensive 10%, obviously that would ca cause the premiums to go way down. The problem with Obamacare, in my mind, is 
that and people always ignore this and there's so many lies going on about this but but uh, in the first place republicans have voted over and over and over and over again to make pre-existing protections permanent but second um, before obamacare was in place between medicaid which is for poor people medicare which is for older people and and private health insurance either through your company or individual policies 85 percent of america was covered 85 percent before obamacare ever went into place and the purpose of obamacare was to get more people covered so after obamacare went into effect three years later when we had the peak of people who have been covered six percent more were covered we went from 85 percent to 91 percent all right so that's good we had six percent more people and i think that's a laudable goal we wanted many people covered than we had. what was the cost of that though the cost of that that was that the premiums that the other 85 percent were paying went up 230 percent okay so to get six percent more people covered the other 85 percent had to pay more than double so now what i'm hearing from my people back here in the district is i can't afford the health insurance anymore you know but barack obama made three promises about obamacare he said if you like your doctor you can keep it and that was a lie he said if you like your insurance policy you can keep it that was a lie and he said and it'll cause the cost of a family's health insurance to drop by two thousand five hundred dollars per year and it actually the reverse was true it more than doubled the cost of, of health insurance so what the republican plan was see the reason the reason why it doubled is because you're forcing health health insurance companies to take people who are already sick so a guy cannot buy a health insurance policy for his whole life and he gets lung cancer and he's about to die and he comes to the insurance company and he says okay now i want to buy a policy purpose of insurance is to spread risk he ain't spreading risk he's putting risk on everybody else right so now that he's got to go he's got to pay the same thing as everybody else for his policy the insurance company saying i'm taking you know i'm going to get four hundred dollars a month from him and i'm going to have to pay two hundred thousand dollars in in care for him and he's going to die but that's the law that's what it so he's going to have to be able to buy of course that causes premiums to go up so what our proposal was is take the insurance companies, yeah, you have to take everybody. Yeah, you can only charge them the same thing. But the most expensive, high-risk patients, you can shift them over to the government. They call it a high-risk pool. Most states had them before Obamacare. That's why 85% of the people are covered. And what I hear very often, and I want to be real clear about this, the Democrats always say 100 million people will lose their coverage if you take away pre-existing coverage. 100 million people is one third of the people in the country okay that would be that would be 33 percent go look at the numbers i'm not making this up before obamacare 85 percent of people were covered after obamacare they only covered six percent more the idea that I don't, we're not going to lose pre-existing but even if we did that 100 million people lose their coverage is complete garbage. It 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 wasn't there. It wasn't that way before. It won't be that way. It wouldn't be that way later. Congressman Rice, I just want to follow up with a statement. President Trump did a town hall last night. He he did a very good job. And there's one question that he was asked when we're talking about 
um, healthcare. And it's the same question I want to ask you and something that he pledged to it. He said he will fight to keep pre-existing conditions. Would, would that be a pledge that you take as well as Congressman? Yes, as a yes. Congressman? I voted for it several times. And the, Thank and you. the plan that we put across the line would have preserved pre-existing coverage, but it would do it the way I said it would do it, where everybody can go by any insurance company they want to, they can buy that policy, they can pay the same premium as everybody else, but without them even knowing about it, and without any effect to them in any way, their coverage is going to be the same. The insurance company at the end of the year can go to the government and say, you know what, I had to take on these 10% of the people and I want you to indemnify me for that. And that would be the effect of that on the, on the premiums for everybody else would be, it probably cut premiums by at least 30%. So I guess the next thing we're going to move into is, you know, yes, we interviewed your opponent on Wednesday. Um, and she kind of hits you on offshore drilling. Um, and we also know that uh, Representative Joe Cunningham from Charleston, he proposed a ban on offshore drilling um, off the coast of South Carolina, I think the Atlantic coast altogether, and you voted against that bill. Can you explain that or clarify your stance on the issue? He, his bill would have banned uh, offshore drilling through in the entire country. It would, it, would have, it would have banned offshore drilling in Louisiana, in California, in Alaska, in places where it already exists. Now, it would not have said you have to stop tomorrow, but as leases expired, you could not have renewed those leases anymore. In those places, they've been doing this for, you know, many, many decades, and they want to do it. And I don't think I should impose that, my view on them. Now, I have, I have drafted bills to, to bar uh, uh, drilling off of South Carolina, and Nancy Pelosi won't let my bills come to the floor. <laughs> if she did, then I would, <laughs> then I would vote for that. I have, uh, I have co-sponsored uh, bills or amendments put forth by Democrats that would have banned uh, uh, offshore drilling in the Atlantic. And I, before, uh, before, uh, when Ryan Zinke was the Interior uh, Department of Interior Secretary. And uh, I met with him three times before Donald Trump you know, banned uh, offshore drilling finally in the Atlantic up to North Carolina. And, and I wrote letters uh, to uh, this, the Secretary of the Interior, and I led letters for the entire delegation and for, not, not everybody signed off, but most of them did. Uh, and Henry Astor signed off with me asking the president to ban drilling off of South Carolina. I love what he's done uh, in that he has banned it for Florida to North Carolina for what is it, two years? Uh, or maybe start, it starts next year. That's what it is. I, I, don't think, I don't think it should be allowed. And here's why. When I first ran, I was a little more hesitant about this because oil was $100 a barrel, gas was $4 a gallon, and it was going up. This was before people even thought about fracking. That was 2012. It wasn't that long ago. And in five years, now we have, I think some people have said over two, up to 200 years of oil discovered onshore that is recoverable at a reasonable price. That being the case, there's no reason in the world we need to take on any more risk and, and drill in the Atlantic. I'm absolutely against it. Clearly, unequivocally, absolutely against it. Am I going to vote for a bill that bans offshore drilling throughout the entire country? No. If they want to do that themselves, that's up to them. You know, if, uh, if the Gulf Coast legislators want to bring a bill that bans uh, uh, offshore drilling in the Gulf Coast, 
fine with me. I'll vote for that. But am I going to vote for for Cunningham's bill here that bans it everywhere in the country, even where it exists already? No, I don't think that's the reason. I want. I also want my consumers to be able to go to the gas station and get gas for what is it now? Dollar eighty a gallon. That's like a tax cut. That puts more money in people's pockets. I think you raise a really important point um, that our, our show is all about uh, bipartisanship. I think it's important that you raise that point that you've, you've sponsored bills written by Democrats or even voted for them. I think that's an important thing. You know, not every issue is a partisan issue. Uh, and I think that's a really good point to bring up. Um, I'll tell you a great example. That's the CARES Act. You know, the, uh, when, when COVID hit and it was obvious that it was going to have this devastating economic effect. People say there's no bipartisanship in Congress. But my goodness, that, that was a landmark bill. It propped up individuals and small businesses. Uh, it was wildly successful. I mean, the, the public opinion of that is over the top. And I believe if we hadn't come together and done that bill, uh, and it passed by great majorities in both houses, if we hadn't done that, that we would be in a depression and I, I wish we could get to a second recovery bill. It's desperately needed, but there's some politics going on right now with that. And I'll just well, and Congressman Rice, it's one thing that I, I kind of hit your opponent on yesterday, and I because I think it would be really good for the PD, and I think you've done a very good job with it, is the I-73. You know, you hear so many local people saying, um, and, you know, I don't understand why this is good and understand why this is bad, but this is the same thing they said and the 80s about I-95, and look how well it's done for Dillon County now. So my thing, my, my question to you is how do we get that done? What, what is your stance when you get reelected um, to get into I-73 to start getting it built? Well, uh, I had hoped that, and the president wanted uh, an infrastructure bill, a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, uh, when he came to office, but he got tied up with other things between, uh, you know, tax reform was first, healthcare reform, we didn't get across the line, regulatory reform, we did, uh, trade reset, we did. He just hadn't quite got the infrastructure yet. You know, I, I, I'm about American competitiveness. I think if we make our country and our area competitive, then our workers can compete with anybody in the world. And the reason why our economy was stagnant before Donald Trump, the reason why, uh, our counties, some of our counties in this district hadn't had opportunities because they don't, they're not competitive. They don't have things that attract industry and infrastructure is one of those things. If Dillon County had not had I-95, the Dillon Inland Fort would not be there because they couldn't get, they wouldn't be getting containers there. And, you know, uh, where Horry County, uh, which is the biggest population county in the district, also has very low wages. Why? Because so dependent on tourism and uh, and and their their service job uh, service jobs, their seasonal jobs, they're intermittent, and so they don't pay that much. And the only way we're going to get more industry in Horry County, and in Marion County, and in Dillon County, and in Marlboro County, and Georgetown, and Florence, and Darlington, and uh, Chesterfield, is if we have more infrastructure. The estimate on jobs created by I-73 is 29,000 jobs. Now, a lot of those are building the road. You know, when I say a lot, maybe a third of those are building the road, but still 20,000. And I think that number is overstated. I think it's half that. If it was 10,000 jobs, it'd be the biggest thing that has ever 
happened in this district. It would raise the quality of life and the opportunity for everybody that lives in this district. So I, I have fought for it since the day I got there. It took me four years to get the permit. It was dead as a doornail when I got to Congress. I got the permit for I-73, and now I got to get funding. What will make it happen? Horry County actually approved and then took away a, a, a law that would have funded about $400 million of the $1.4 billion cost from 95 to the coast. Uh, and then uh, uh, we could toll it to get, I don't want to toll it. I'd rather have the federal government pay for it, but we could toll it and get another $400 billion. And then we got to get the state and the feds to split the rest. But until I get an infrastructure package at the federal level, is really not a mechanism to fund it at the federal level. And but that infrastructure package is coming. We got a shovel ready project. There's still a lawsuit pending from the Coastal Conservation League. We got to get past that. But uh, we got a shovel ready project, and, and uh, I'll be ready when the infrastructure package comes down. You know, one thing that we kind of want to uh, hone in on on that kind of issue is our rural areas in our district. You know, we besides Myrtle Beach and Florence, rural areas are majority of our district. You know, you've got Lakeview and Dillon County and Pageland and Sherall and Lamar, all these little communities. How do you, what what issues do you focus on in these, ish, uh, in these areas? Because, you know, these areas are taking a hard hit, not just in our state, but across the country. I mean, you got Marble Park that used to be a hospital in Marble County. They don't even have a hospital in Marble, Marble County anymore. So how do we bring economic recovery, uh, bring jobs back, uh, bring hospitals, um, expand public education? How do we bring these communities up? I don't think it's magic, my friend. And, and viewers out there, I, I want to also say that both these guys have interned for me before. They are bright young people and the example of the best in America. And thank you, young men, for doing what you're doing. But I, I don't think it's rocket science. All we have to do is make our, our country and our area competitive in the world. And we've come a long way, which you have seen the result of that. Uh, this, this illness has set us back a little bit, but we'll get past it. As soon as we do, uh, uh, you'll see that opportunity come back. And uh, uh, so, so making our area competitive, the main thing we can do is infrastructure. And uh, you know, we, we've got to see the effect of this opportunity. Look at a town like Sherall. Look at a town like Hartsville, which are you know thriving little towns, right? And they've got you know vibrant downtowns, and people are building things around there. What's the difference between those towns and some of the towns in our district that aren't doing so well? Well, the difference is Hartsville has Sunoco products, right? They kept their industry. It employs, I don't know, 1,500 people in good paying jobs. That can sustain a little town like that and give it the opportunity to, you know, branch off into things like Coca College and so Sherrall has Ena. I don't, it's not Ena anymore. I can't remember the name of it. But another, you know, Shaffler. what's that? It's Schaffler. It's Schaffler, uh, which is another significant employer that employs, you know, over a thousand people that sustains a little town. And so many of our little towns lost their industry a lot after NAFTA, right? Remember? So here's here's Donald Trump that is coming in and say, saying that was a bad deal has redone it 
And that's one of the reasons why you've seen this reinvigoration, not just in the Midwest, not just in the Northeast, but places like Marion County with sub 4% unemployment six months ago, right? Places like Dillon County, places like Marlboro County. It's not rocket science, it's logic, a strategy and carrying that strategy out. And we had done a really good job and we have done a really good job and it'll come back. We just got to get past this illness. Congressman Rice, I know you got, um, we got to finish up really quick, but one thing that I think is really that you've done and you're very humble about this and you don't really say it much. So I want to bring it up is you've done a good job of making sure that our education is number one priority from passing out school supplies to bringing Betsy DeVos and Molly Spearman to our schools here in the rural area. Why do you do that? Why is that so important for economic development? Well, uh, you know, you can't have a, uh, you can't pursue opportunity if you don't have a prepared, if you're not prepared. And uh, I think, I think we have done, uh, we have areas where we've done a really good job and we've done, had areas where we've maybe overlooked some things. And some of our school districts haven't performed quite as well as I'd like. But I've taken great effort to try to, well, let's go back to six months ago. And for the two years before that, when the economy was thriving in, in our rural areas, the biggest complaint I was getting was employers were calling me and saying, I can't find employees. So on the one hand, you've got this struggle for businesses to find qualified employees. And on the other hand, you got 30% of the people outside the workforce in some of our forest counties. How do you connect those two dots? Because a lot of these folks are just, it's generational poverty. It's things that people have learned. They don't, they don't believe that they have a chance. They don't believe that even if they prepared themselves, that the American dream is for them. And so I, that's why I brought Betsy DeVos here. That's why I brought Molly Spearman here. That's why I had three community meetings at the Dillon Inland Port where I brought high school guidance counselors, principals, school superintendents, and and uh, they absolutely love that. Just to say that they they talk, they still talk about that today. To, to show them that listen, this isn't you know you guys have heard hollow promises for a hundred years, and a lot of those folks have for a hundred years, and they don't believe it anymore. And so I want you to see that this inland fort that you read about in the paper, it's not a promise, it's not a dream, it's not something that may happen. It's already here and it's already producing these jobs. And all you have to do is get your students prepared at a basic level to take advantage of this. Everybody doesn't need to go to college. In fact, we're shipping too many people into college and getting them out with sociology degree and they can't find a job. You can go talk to uh, uh, Chairman Bethay at, at uh, Florence Darlington Tech or Chairman Ford at Ori Georgetown or uh, Northeastern Tech and they'll tell you, we can't get enough students to place. Chairman uh, Fay told me he could place a thousand diesel mechanics tomorrow. And these guys are making 50, 60 grand a year. Computerized digital machining, outboard mechanics at Lloyd Georgetown Tech. I mean, all these programs that they're desperate for workers, and yet, you know, we're telling people go to college or you don't have a chance. That is, we've got to change that mindset. There's a huge need for technical workers. And, I'll, and this is going to be our last policy question until we have, we can, you know, just have a little fun. 
But, you know, when we look at across the country, we've asked everybody this on our show. When we look across the country and we see the absolutely distress between law enforcement and community members and community members against each other, and we become so polarized. And if you're a Democrat, then you don't support the law enforcement. If you're a Republican, then you don't support black folks. And as well as my relationship with you, we just know that's not true. So as a Congress member and the 7th Congressional District, how do you mend that divide between law enforcement and community members to show these guys aren't so bad? Well, um, I have tried to do what I could. I did a law enforcement tour uh, during the summer when all of these uh, events were unfolding uh, to try to let them know that people were behind them. I went to every county and met in every sheriff's office and a lot of the municipalities came too. And I tell you, it was pretty uh, therapeutic. <laughs> there, were, there, were, there was laughter and there was serious discussion and there were tears shed uh, because these guys on a normal day, they faced pressure that I don't think I could deal with and most people could not deal with. They, they, they take these jobs and they make almost no pay and they put their, literally put their lives on the line to keep society in order in place. And, uh, and uh, then they get this public backlash. Wasn't so much here. I mean, people here have seen what heroes law enforcement are. If you think about that shooting in Florence two years ago, and there were seven police officers were shot, and two of them died. And then here in Myrtle Beach just recently, and that one at the Florence airport, I was just there. Uh, meeting with his family and giving them a flag that was flown over the Capitol. Uh, people here have seen what law enforcement goes through up close and personal, and they and the overwhelming majority love our law enforcement and appreciate our law enforcement. And, uh, you know, there's no way, in my opinion, that society could function without them. And, you know, the scary thing is, it's not true here by the, the bulk of Democrats. Bulk of Democrats don't believe we should be fine or do away with police. But in other places, it absolutely is true. And they absolutely are doing it. And uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a odd time in society when we're looking at, you know, a really a lot of fundamental changes to things that would have been considered very basic uh, not long ago, and I just worry that uh, that uh, you know here we have built this country. We did, our forefathers did, uh, that has produced a system of government that encourages freedom and encourages innovation. And the result of that is the most prosperous country that has ever existed on the face of the earth, and that that we're going to rethink that and move toward uh, systems that have, have failed in comparison uh, across the world is really, uh, it's an anathema to me, it's silly to me. I can't imagine that, that any thinking person would want to do that. <laughs> hey. All right, so now- I'm gonna find, to... I promise you that. <laughs> we, want, we want to move uh, back into some broad questions about your race. Uh, the first one, main question is, so you're running to serve a fifth term, uh -huh. um, why, and you're running against Melissa Watson. Uh -huh. Why should voters trust you over her? And then 
after that question, after you've done answer that, the second one is, Just what's, follow up, up, what's yeah. something y'all could, y'all could agree on? Um, well, I mean, I think, I, I've never met Melissa, but I, I, no, I, you know, I think she did come in my office a long time ago, but I haven't met her in years. But I think that uh, we could agree that, that we all want the, a, a bright future for our children. And I really do believe that, you know, uh, uh, that the proposals between the two of us, that hers would lead to a bigger government and a slower economy and less opportunity. And mine would be the opposite. A, a, more growth, more economic growth, and more opportunity for people in every income strata of every color and wherever they live. Uh, uh, the difference, what, what, I answered the second part first. What was the first part I forgot? Oh, why would they trust me over well, her? You, you kind of already answered that. Um. <laughs> the main reason is she doesn't live here. She hasn't lived here in 25 years. She lives in Charleston. She's a high school teacher in Charleston. She graduated from high school in Dillon or Marlboro County and moved away. And she hadn't been here in 25 years. And why in the world she wants to come up here and run, and run in this district? In this district, I have, it drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, she had, she uh, a television station called me and asked me if I wanted to debate her. I said, you know what? She doesn't live here. If she wants to debate, Tell her to call Nancy Mason, Joe Cunningham, and debate them because that's where she lives. <laughs> now, well, I, that, that, I think that covers a good question about a debate. So we'll make sh we'll, you know we'll hopefully she'll be in the um, the first, I don't know is that what district that in, but it seems to be a not a very close race. So maybe she can help Joe Cunningham out a little bit there. But well, actually, you know, he's up in the polls for our viewers. He's they say he's up 13 points. Up 13 points. So, you know what? That's a cool thing is we talk about bipartisanship. Do you want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Joe Cunningham and maybe Jim Clyburn? Um, maybe a time you guys have worked together? Well, you know, uh, it, it is very true that the press make things look, you know, worse than they are routinely. But, you know, there's an awful lot of bills that come through Congress on a bipartisan basis. I'd say the well, all of the bills that get signed in the law, all of them are bipartisan. Uh, and so that would be, you know, at least 100 a year. Uh, but I have co-sponsored recently uh, Mr. Clyburn's uh, broadband bill, uh, which is co-authored by him and a Republican named Fred Upton. I have co-sponsored um, Mr. Clyburn's Heritage Trail uh, proposal. Uh, so no, I, I work with uh, I work with folks pretty frequently uh, across the board. I tried to get them to. I actually drafted a bill that would close the Charleston loophole on the, on the gun violence, and I couldn't get a single Democrat to go with me on it. But, uh, but no, we, we work across the uh, we work across the aisle fairly frequently. That's just such an important question for our podcast for our viewers. You know, we're so focused on bipartisanship. And we know in your race, there really could be some, whether you believe it or not, there really could be a Biden rice voter. Um, and there also could be a Biden president so that you have to work under. So bipartisanship is something that we don't, we don't see enough of. And we want to highlight that. Well, always. in the last, uh, in the last election in this district, uh, Donald Trump won by 18 points and I won by 21 or 22. So there are absolutely, uh, voters that supported me that did not, did not support the Republican president. So, I, yeah, I know that. 
that's the case. And, and you know, I, I work hard to be out in this district. Shoot, I'm, I'm tired right now, guys, because I just finished crossing this district again. I've been out, I've done, I don't know, six or seven events in the last two days. I did four barbecues. I, I don't care if I eat another piece of barbecue for another <laughs> for a month. But, I, you know, I was uh, 14th out of 535 congressmen in the last Congress for how many town halls I did. I did 48 town halls in two years. I really, I really work hard to be out there with my uh, constituents. And I think they see that. And I think they know that. And I, I, um, I, I work hard to, to build trust. And somewhere, I'm, some places I'm successful and some places I'm not. Uh, you know, I try to do what I tell them I'm going to do. And, and I don't hide from them. And I, uh, and I uh, make myself available. So I, I, I try to do this job and do it well. And, you know, this is going to be our last question, but a fun question. You know, you know, you mentioned barbecue, and um, I've talked with your staff this, this week and several people in Dillon to get them to come down to Shuler's to meet you. And, uh, you know, they, a lot of them that I spoke to, probably 40, 50 people had a very good time, and they enjoyed your company. Um, and Norman, um, that runs Shuler, was very happy to have you there. I'm, I'm sure all the people were, too. Um, but so we want to end barbecue. this question. They got good barbecue. Now, I don't want to – I don't want to put down any barbecue places in the district because they're all good. But Shuler's is right up there now. They're really good. It is. <laughs> and, and, you know, they have good dessert. I, I, I love Shuler's barbecue. It's, something, it's a must stop to. So we're thinking about places to stop to in um, our district, the 7th District. We want to end with everybody going around and just saying your favorite must stop when you're in the 7th Congressional District. Um, it could be food or just a landmark that people just have to see. So I'll say – you know, when I'm in um, the 7th Congressional District, um, and I'll take this away from either one of you guys, I have to stop um, at Lizard Thickens in Florence. I got a good friend that Grandpa started the place, Mr. Williams, and it's a must-stop in South Carolina. Uh, well, I'll tell you, my, uh, my favorite landmark in this district is a natural place, and that's the, the Waccamaw River. Um, the Waccamaw River from, well, really it's entire length, but my favorite part is the part from Socastee to Georgetown. Uh, it's just, people come to, the, to this district and the Grand Stream to visit, and they go to the beach, or they go to uh, Brook Ring Gardens, or, or they go to, you know, state parks in PD, or, or, but that area is just so incredibly beautiful and so unspoiled. And uh, people never get to see it. So if you ever get a chance, get on a boat and get out there. I'm gonna give a, for mine. I'm gonna give a shout out to my parents um, who and and me since I've grown up a lot of my life there. If you never, if you always take the bypass around Marion, at least one time you need to ride down Main Street, Marion. It's a beautiful town. It's got a beautiful Main Street, and it's it's a scenic it's a scenic area as you ride to the beach. And I, I say another really cool place is the Hotel Florence. If you hadn't been there, uh, and they have a wonderful restaurant called Victor's downstairs, but it, it was a hotel that was built in about 1840, I think. And then over the years, it was converted to a retail store. And when downtown Florence had become, you know, all the windows were boarded up and it was a pretty blighted area. And uh, people didn't want to go down there at night. And that, some downtown businessmen decided they were going to try to reinvigorate. They invest a lot of money, and they put that old hotel back, and it is spectacular. 
It is historic and it's beautiful. And once they finish that, and we help them get the federal historic tax credit for replacing it. But then the Chamber of Commerce moved in and then another hotel moved down the street and a brewery opened up across the street and a Mexican restaurant. And now that area is a center of nightlife. And it just happened in the last five years. So check it out. And I'll say this as our closing statement, you know, to the seventh congressional district, you heard from Congressman Rice and he's been, he's been very excitable and excited about his race. So best reminder for November 3rd, get out and vote and don't forget. And uh, I want to also make a closing comment. Also, um, like you said, you know, we're not going to have a debate for this district. Uh, this district. Uh, we listened to Melissa on Wednesday. and Here's your opportunity to hear Congressman Rice. I hope you'll take a listen to both of these podcasts.